And please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We are presently in a series on the Gospel of Luke. As you know, it's a gospel that's been written by Dr. Luke. He, at some point in his life, has become a Christian. And then he's been sent on mission, really, by a man called Theophilus to compile a narrative on all the things of Jesus. Why? Well, so that we may have certainty considering the things that we have been taught. That we may know that the faith that we ascribe to isn't just some made up fairy tale, but is true. It is factual. It is things that we can stand on and hold on to as an individual and as a local church. And today we come to some very precious, precious parts of this gospel. So we're going to read together Luke chapter 9, verse 18 through to the end of verse 27. And this is the word of the Lord. Now it happened that as he, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, oh, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that this word would come alive in our hands today. That it may be as if we were there listening directly to the words of Jesus falling on our ears. Lord, would what we discuss here, oh Lord, would it thrill our hearts? Would it amaze us? Lord, open our eyes to behold the wonders of your word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Now, a few weeks ago now, we celebrated our Lydia's 15th birthday. We did it lockdown style, as we've all been doing for a lot of months. And so what that meant for us was an online escape room. That was her chosen thing for the night. I've never actually done one before, but we all got our computers out and our devices out. And we spent some time in an online escape room. And I must admit, it was a lot of fun. And yet it was also incredibly frustrating. You see, apparently the record for getting out of the room that we were in was about 16 minutes. Once we got to about two hours, we realized we probably weren't going to beat the record. It was very difficult. We had been dropped off by this school bus. We had been put into a school and all the doors were locked and we had to figure out how to get out of this school so we could get back on the bus and go home. And it was incredibly frustrating because at times you just thought 
What does it all mean? I mean, there were signs on the on the on the doors at some points. There were like we had to walk around with a torch at one point in one of the rooms, and you could see these symbols on the walls. And you're like, great, the symbols on the wall. But what does it all mean? There were just things going on. You know, there was books on shelves that you found, and apparently they meant something. So you're excited. So you open the book, and you open just just symbols. I mean, what does this all mean? It was a lot of fun, but it was also very, very frustrating at times because it was interesting and hard to work out what it all means. And so if you'd been here on that night, the phrase, what does it all mean, would have been ringing in your ears because that's what we were all saying at different times around this room. Well, that phrase, what does it all mean, that question is exactly what flies as a banner, I believe, over Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Because it is right here that Dr. Luke in some ways shrinks the entirety of his gospel message down to just 10 verses and explains what it all means. What it is that lies at the heart of this gospel message what it is that lies at the very core of everything he's trying to tell us from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 24. What it is that he wants us to see and grasp in this gospel. And what it all means. And what it is that he wants to tell us right here is simply this. That Jesus is the Christ. The one the whole world has been waiting for. And through him and him alone. We can be saved. In a nutshell, that's what it all means. That's what it is that lies at the heart of this gospel message. That's what it is that lies at the heart of everything Dr. Luke is trying to tour us around in this great gospel. What it all means that Jesus is the Christ, the one the whole world has been waiting for. And that is through him and him alone that we can be saved. Three points then this morning, three points that are really questions as we walk through this text together. Number one, who is Jesus? Number two, why did he come? And then number three, how should we respond? And my friends, it's hope that if you are a believer online this morning, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that this would be a wonderful moment of refreshing for, for you. That this wouldn't just fall into the category of, oh, I know that, I've heard that before. But you would be freshly amazed as if Jesus did this for you just yesterday. I want us to lean in on this text as Dr. Luke pulls it all together for us right here at the start of the second third of his gospel. I want it to be as if we've heard it never before and be amazed in it as we delight in who Jesus is and why he has come and indeed what that all means. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're tuned in today, listen, it is my prayer for you and has been all week that as you hear these words, you would repent of your sin. You would see Jesus for who he really is and you would put your faith in him as Lord and Savior. And in that very moment, you would be saved. That having arrived on this call as somebody who doesn't know Jesus, you would leave understanding exactly who Jesus is and you would entrust your life to him and indeed be saved as a result. That's what this all means. And so three points. And here's the first. Who is Jesus? 
And it is that question that Dr. Luke really placards before our eyes in verses 18, 19, and 20. Let's look at them together. It says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. You know, right here at the start of the text, you see Jesus in a very intimate moment, I think, with his disciples. He's he's praying. He's spending time with his father. Prayer is a theme that runs throughout this book. You see Jesus regularly praying. But in particular, Luke draws attention to the fact that he's specifically seen praying, particularly just before something very vital in the text takes place. And so you see Jesus praying before his baptism. You see Jesus praying before he chooses the 12. And now you see Jesus praying before he asks them, who do you think I am? And so first of all, he asks, well, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered him because they knew only too full full well what the crowds say. You know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're probably Elijah. Others think that maybe one of the prophets has come back and reincarnated, I guess, and that you must be a prophet. And then he says to them, "Okay, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, on behalf of the disciples, he's clearly become the spokesman by now. He looks Jesus in his eyes and he tells you, this is who we believe you are. We believe you are Christ, the God. You are himself Christ of God. And my friends, what a moment in the text this is. Prior to this moment, the disciples have never, ever said that. The angels all the way back in Luke chapter 2, they've declared Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ of God. The demons in chapter 4, they've declared Jesus the Christ of God, the Messiah. But no disciple has ever said this yet. No one seems to have seen clearly what is going on. And this statement is significant. To call somebody the Christ, just to be clear, Jesus Christ, that's not like his surname. It's not like Taylor or Smith, okay? You know, by very nature, Christ is a title. It's a position. It is the Greek version of what the Hebrew states as the Messiah, i.e. the anointed one that Israel has been waiting for for hundreds of years, ever since the time of David. The anointed one, the deliverer who will come to put all things right and usher in a new kingdom. The, the Israelites have been, been glorifying about this thought for decades and centuries, waiting for this great Messiah, this anointed one of God to come. And now as the disciples assess the evidence, as they examine what Jesus has been like through the entire time they have known him, their assumption and conclusion is simply this. You're him. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God. And my friend, as they've examined the evidence, you'd have to understand the evidence is indeed overwhelming. I mean, first of all, there's the miracles, the miracles that Dr. Luke has placarded before our eyes in chapters one through eight. We've seen Jesus do some pretty incredible things, haven't we? We've seen him rebuking demons, evil spirits, 
No one else can get these evil spirits out of people. It, it isn't possible. But then Jesus rocks up and demons start manifesting in front of him. And in a moment, he says, be still, be quiet and get out. And the demons each and every time respond to his voice because he's the Christ, the Messiah. You see him healing people in their masses, whether it be a leper or a paralytic or a man with a withered hand. He even raises a small young child back to life. And then there's the crowds. The disciples have been walking with Jesus all this time. They've seen him healing masses of people from all sorts of different issues and ailments. Just a few days ago, they're with Jesus in a boat and there is a storm that is raging all around them. They're, they're panicking. They're in fear. Like, we're going to die. They wake Jesus up. He's actually sleeping all the way through this storm. They wake him up. And in a moment, he stands up and says to the storm, be still. And in a moment, even the winds and the waves respond to him. And there is peace. There's the feeding of the 5,000. Some kid, he's only got five loaves and two fish. And Jesus prays over this five loaves and two fish and he feeds the 5,000, the masses, and there are baskets and baskets and baskets of this stuff left. They have seen by now in walking with Jesus. And listen, church, this isn't a fairy tale. These are real people walking with a real man 2,000 years ago. Even the history books talk of this. So even if we remove the Bible, even history, secular history talks about this man, Jesus, who was going around performing incredible miracles. And they're looking at all this. They're experiencing it firsthand, seeing the way he operates in a supernatural, incredible way. And then, of course, there's his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. All these guys are Jews. They understand the way this works. They understand the one they've been waiting for. And their assessment is, surely this is this is him. You see, in the Old Testament, there are hundreds and hundreds of prophecies. Prophecies like this one in Micah chapter five, verses two and four. This is what we read about the Christ to come. It says, but you, O Bethlehem of Paphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. You know, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies like this one that describe where Jesus is going to be born, what he's going to be like, what he's actually going to do, who he's going to be. There's even prophecies that relate to the man that directly goes before him. And so Isaiah chapter 40, for example, it's prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus arrives, that before Jesus arrives, God will send a messenger before the Christ who prepares the way, literally a voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. That's why in Luke chapter 3, Dr. Luke helps us see, you know, that one that they've been waiting for is John the Baptist. That was his entire message. And people are coming out from in their thousands and their multitudes to be baptized by John. And his whole message is, listen, prepare the way of the Lord. Make your path straight. And then Jesus arrives. The disciples have been seeing all this firsthand. 
They've been seeing his miracles. They've been seeing his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And their conclusion is simply this. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah we've been waiting for. You're the anointed one. You must be him. You know, my friends, that question of who do you say I am is one of the most important and vital questions that each and every one of us have to answer in our lives. We have to answer it for ourselves because so much of what happens in our life and our death and in particular in eternity at a foundational level depends on how we answer that question. Who do you say I am? Who do you believe Jesus is? See, the Muslims would answer that and say, well, we believe Jesus was a prophet. I don't think he was God. I mean, let's be serious. Well, we do believe he was a prophet. The Hindus would say, oh, Jesus, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. He's our God, no doubt about it. But he's just our God, right? Because the Hindus would have thousands of gods. He's just one amongst the masses. And an atheist would say, come on, let's be serious. There's no way he's any of those different things. I mean, not many atheists would actually say, I don't believe he existed, because even secular history says he existed. But their assumption then that this man that existed and did what he did, he's probably just either like a really good leader or a good moral teacher. And yet Jesus didn't claim to be any of those things. Jesus claimed to actually be God. And the evidence that he put alongside this claim to be God, my friends, it is overwhelming. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, his miracles in the masses, his character, the way he loved people and cared for people and bound up the brokenhearted. We all have to decide, who do you believe he is? Well, the disciples in this moment, they made their conclusion. They examined the evidence and their conclusion is you must be him. The Christ of God, the Messiah, the anointed one that we have all been waiting for. And the question then that should really come to all our minds is, okay, well, going along that he's God, why did he come? Why now? What was he actually coming to do? Why did he not appear before or later? And what exactly was he coming to do? And that's my second question. Why did he come? And Jesus himself addresses the disciples in this in verses 21 and 22. This is what he says. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. You know, the disciples have finally figured out who Jesus is. They finally figured it out. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one to come. And one would have thought that Jesus at this moment would say, yes, well done. Go tell everybody. Tell everybody that God has come and I am he. But instead he doesn't. He strictly charges and commands them to tell no one. Who would have thought that he would say that? But you see, you have to understand that although they finally figured out who he is, they have not yet understood why he has come. They've understood that he's the Christ and they've understood that this is the one who is going to bring in this new kingdom of God. But their understanding of the kingdom of God is very different to Jesus's realization of what the kingdom of God is. 
They think of the kingdom of God simply in geopolitical terms. They think of it as in a physical place, i.e. probably Jerusalem. And so their assumption is that this Christ, this anointed one, will get us to Jerusalem. He'll take his throne in Jerusalem. We will kick the Romans out. We'll start to rule the world through Jerusalem. It will be a happy place and be a great thing. But Jesus explains to them, listen, this kingdom of God, it isn't geopolitical. It is spiritual and everlasting. And the only way to get into this kingdom of God, well, it isn't going to involve me taking a throne at this point. And he begins to explain to them what he's actually come to do, what he will actually do to get people into this kingdom of God. And he tells them in verse 22 that he has actually come to die. You know, there's no doubt that the disciples in this moment, their their minds would have just been blown. Because of their understanding of what the kingdom of God is as geopolitical, what do you mean you've come to die? There's no way you can be dying. We're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to take your fire. We're going to be sweet. Their minds would have been blown in this moment. It would have been so difficult for them to comprehend what Jesus is saying. And he understands that, which is why he doesn't want to go and go out shouting about that this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, because what they're going to go on to tell everybody about him is totally wrong. And so he strictly commands them and tells them to tell no one. And as he describes for them what he's actually come to do, namely to die, their minds would have been blown. And my friends, as we now look back on what Jesus is telling us here, understanding where this all goes, our minds should be blown as well. This is a staggering reality, what he's telling us. here. You know, there is a a verse in a well-known hymn that I've always enjoyed and appreciated when we gather around verses like 22. And this is what the verse says in the old hymn. It says, oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Right here in verse 22, we begin to understand in an introductory way what it would mean to him, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. And what it would mean is the horror and anguish of the cross. You know, my friends, I think if we're honest as Christians, we can we can hear that. And we can know that because we hear it so much. It become like Teflon to us. It just sort of sticks to us momentarily and then leaves. You're like, yeah, I get it. Jesus, he's God. He died for us. It's really good. It's really kind. And then we move on. But this morning, I just want to slow us down. So that we may gaze at this verse afresh as if it just happened yesterday. And we may see what it meant to thee, the Holy One. To bear away my sin. And this is what we read in Mark chapter 15, verses 12 to 24, as we're taken to that end. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. 
And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander of Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him into the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. My friends, what did it mean to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin? It meant the horror and anguish of the cross. See, everything that is taking place in this moment is the day after the night before. And the night before, we have the horrors of the Garden of Gethsemane. A moment where for Jesus, as he cries out to God for help, it isn't heaven that begins to open up to him. It is the horrors of hell. And right there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he starts to experience the horrors of relational abandonment. He's completely alone. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that the shepherd would be struck. And in that moment, the sheep will scatter. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, it began to happen. He takes into the garden Peter, James, and John, and he says, listen, pray. Pray for me and pray for yourselves. And he goes into the garden and he's praying, and it simply says, he staggered. He's so overwhelmed with what is taking place and what is about to take place that he falls to his knees. He's sweating drops of blood. Such is his anxiety about what is about to take place. And three times he goes back to Peter and James and John. They've just got one job. Stay awake and pray. Three times he returns and three times they're asleep. He's already started to experience relational abandonment. And the last time he gets up with them, they go out of the Garden of Gethsemane to the edge. And there are a whole battalion of soldiers along with Judas ready to arrest him. Judas kisses him on his cheek. He's the ultimate betrayal by a friend. And then the battalion arrests him. There is a momentary kerfuffle in all that takes place. There is momentary difficulties. But in a split second, all the disciples have ran off and left him. He's now alone. Relational abandonment is the way he walked through this entire moment of suffering in his life. He then endured a night and indeed a morning of awful and horrendous torture and suffering. He was scourged. He was falsely tried. To be scourged simply means you're not just whipped, but they would put pieces of metal and glass in the whip so that as they pulled it out of you, it would bring some of your flesh with it. Jesus endured all that. He was then handed over to a battalion. As we just read, they mocked him. They beat him around the head. 
They basically mocked him for being the king. The exact thing he was. But they just thought it was hilarious. And so they beat him around his head while he is alone and devoid of any friendship around him. They start to mock him as the king. They make it clear, if you're really him, then prophesy, who just hit you? And then they lead him out to be crucified. And then at the height of pain and in the depth of pain, with shame and pain all around him, even the father then turns his face away. In that moment, he becomes sin for us. The father pours out his righteous anger and wrath on his son. He's alone. Oh, help me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Listen, what it meant to thee is the horror and anguish of the cross. Why was he there? Not for you. And for me. My friends, this isn't a fairy tale. This happened for you. Mm. And for me. Romans 3 verse 23, we read, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's our story. Each and every one of us, we've rejected God, we've lived for ourselves, we've exchanged the creator for the created. We'll take your creation, but we don't want you. We enjoy your kingdom, but we don't want a king. God made us to find our identity and our purpose and our joy in worshipping him as creator, but we all rejected him and he could have left us, but he didn't. In Romans 5 verses 6 to 7, we read, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin is the horrors and anguish of Calvary in our place. Cornelius Planting, it says it this way, he says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent, not half so ready to suffer, to win its way. Oh, my goodness. Does not Calvary scream of that reality? Our sin is stubborn, but it is not as stubborn as the grace and mercy and love of God. So when we come across scriptures like this, I don't want it to be like Teflon to us. Oh, I know that. I get it. Get who Jesus is. Get he died. Yeah, thank you. Move on. My friends, I never want us to move on. I just want us to grow into a more and more amazing reality as we see this for what he is. And as we see this for what he has actually done in our place. Jesus is God. And he came as God the Son to die in our place. It's a staggering reality. I pray we would take it in. And then Dr. Luke takes us by the hand. He answers the third part of this most important jigsaw. With the question, how should we respond? Understanding that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ that we've all been waiting for. Understanding that he came to die. 
How do we respond to this reality? Well, that's what we learn about in verses 23 to 26. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. He tells us up front, how then do we respond? We are to respond by coming after him. He invites us to come after me. What he means by that is simply to put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. You see, faith, the whole issue that runs throughout the entire New Testament, is not just mental belief. It's not like, oh, I believe. The Bible tells us even the demons believe. No, true faith is saying, I take you as my Lord. I'm coming after you. You are my rabbi. I am your disciple. You are my teacher. I am your apprentice. True faith, it it comes with action. It is entrusted faith, entrusting our lives to him. Romans 10 verse 9 makes it clear. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Amen to that. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, i.e. we believe, I believe you're God. I believe you're the king. I trust my life to you as my king. And we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Exactly what he says will happen right here. I.e. that he died for you. And then God rose him from the dead in victory. It's understanding that my only acceptance before God is not my behavior. It's the substitutionary death of Jesus. Listen, the Bible makes it clear. When we take Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of our lives, and in that very moment, we will be saved. That's what it means to come after him, to put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior. And listen, the Bible makes it clear that we need to deny ourselves in that reality, that that's going to cost us. And everybody just make sure they're on mute. The Bible makes it clear that for it to be possible, it's gonna, we're gonna need to deny ourselves. It's not gonna be easy. It's actually gonna cost us. What does it mean to deny ourselves? Well, it means to dethrone ourselves from the center of our lives. To understand that I'm no longer the king of my life, but I have a new king and his name is Jesus. And I've entrusted my life to him. He is the one I want to follow. He's the one I'm after. When we put our faith in Jesus, that's what it means. It means to deny ourselves and allow Jesus to become the new king of our lives. And we bow the knee to following him in all things. And folks, make no mistake, that's not always going to be easy. It's going to cost. That's why he tells us, listen, to truly put your faith in me as Lord and Savior and to come after me. Listen, you're going to need to take up your cross daily. You know, my friends, when we understand what it means to walk in this kingdom of God, then by nature we need to understand that this kingdom of God is upside down, as we looked at a few weeks ago. As we follow him, we need to understand we're going to be persecuted at times because of what we believe. We're going to be persecuted at times. There'll be times when we're following Jesus rather than this world, 
And so our sexual ethics are different. The way we operate in work is different. The way we operate in our families is different. The way we value things is different. And sometimes the world will look on and go, what are you doing? This is nuts. I don't like it. You should stop it. There's times when following Jesus and taking him our cross means loving our enemies. Not just taking the act of revenge on them, but understanding, no, I need to turn the other cheek and love them for the glory of God. Following Jesus is not always going to be easy as we deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow him. Without doubt, as Jesus helps us see here, and I trust we realize, it is a decision of heart and life that will be totally and utterly worth it. See, in verse 24, he tells us, whoever loses his life will save it. Whoever actually bows the knee to him and loses his life, loses the kingship of their life, and instead puts Jesus as king of their life, they will not lose their life. They will ultimately save their life. By doing that, they'll be forgiven of their sin. They'll be adopted into the very family of God. They'll be reconciled to the Father. It is a happy, happy place. And whoever is not ashamed of Jesus now, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, he will not be ashamed of us in that moment. He will not say, away from me, I never knew you. He will say, welcome home, son and daughter of the Lord. He won't be ashamed of us. It's so worth it. That's why he gives us the warning in verse 25. When he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses and forfeits himself? What does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, he gets a great degree, he gets a great house, he gets a great job, he goes on great holidays, maybe even owns a row of streets. But what does it profit a man if he gains all that for this small glimpse of millennia, maybe a hundred years? What does it profit a man if he enjoys that, but ultimately loses his soul to the depths of hell for millennia after millennia after millennia after millennia? What profit is it to a man? It's none. My friends, true joy and true grace, true salvation is only found in Jesus It isn't always going to be easy following him and coming after him. But is it worth it? Oh, you bet your life. It's worth everything. Because in that moment, you're forgiven and redeemed and adopted. You know that heaven is your home. It is worth absolutely everything. What an honor it is to follow Jesus. Understanding who he is and why he has come. What an honor it is that we get to follow him. What a privilege it is that we now get to represent him as his ambassadors, understanding how amazing he is. What a privilege that you and I get now the privilege of representing him here in this world. And what an opportunity he is, understanding that as we put our faith in him as Lord and Savior, in that moment, we are saved, washed clean of our sin, reconciled to the Father, adopted by him. Assured that heaven is our home. Oh, what scandalous grace. And my friends, this is what it all means. Right here, Dr. Luke, he takes his gospel and in some ways he just shrinks it down to size. And helps us see that Jesus is the Christ. The one who the whole world has been waiting for. And through him and him alone, we can be saved. That's what it all means. 
My friends, if you're online today and you are a believer, I pray that today is without doubt a wonderful and divine reminder for you. This is what lies at the core of our faith. This is what lies at the heart of our faith, what we stand on and believe. What well, I'm just written on the back of a postcard somewhere. It has been proven throughout scripture. Jesus is the Christ and he died and he died for you. Oh, my friends, I trust that this divine reminder will refuel our hearts with the privilege that it is to follow him. Because what a savior. And what a wonder that he called our name. What a savior. For this is the one we can trust. This is the one we can love. This is the one we can give our lives for, my friends. This is the one that died in our place. And now through the Holy Spirit resides in our lives. He can be trusted. Mm. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you that what you have here is a wonderful and divine invitation. This is written to you. Because God in his grace wants you to see Jesus for who he really is, why he really died, and give you the opportunity to respond. My friends, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a wonderfully all-inclusive statement. Whosoever will put their faith in Jesus will be saved. If you've never done that, I want to encourage you to do that today. Even as the meeting concludes, just say, Lord, I I see you for who you really are. Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? I put my faith in you. I want to rise and go forward, follow thee. That moment you will be saved. And I want to encourage you, if you pray that prayer, if you make that commitment of heart, let us know. Put it in the chat room, write to us, get hold of us, because we want to do all we can to help you in your newfound faith, because you're going to enjoy now a lifelong adventure of being a disciple of Christ, which is what the church really is. So if you make that decision, then let us help you. We would be honored to do that. There is so much more about Jesus that we want to teach you, so much more about Jesus that we can delight in, for he grows as we grow older, and he was unlimitless and is unlimitless in who he really is. My friends, this is what it ultimately all means. So may we delight in this truth and live in the good of all that we see. Let's pray. Well, Savior, you are incredible in every way. And Lord, I thank you that you've given us this glorious glimpse right here into who you are and why you came and the glorious opportunity that we get to respond. Lord, as we conclude the gathering today, I pray that just all eyes would now be on you. That whether we bow to our knees in our heart or in real life, I pray that that would be the disposition of all our hearts. Lord, help us to never move on from this old, old story. And Lord, would it, would it by your grace never become old in our minds and hearts? It's staggering what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. So would we be amazed and would we be astounded and may our hearts always go to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.